Our Father, we have sung great songs of redemption, songs that celebrate what a grand and glorious work you have accomplished in Christ Jesus. Songs that remind us that the only thing that we ever offered up before you was our sin, but what you have accomplished in Christ Jesus has dealt with our sin utterly, completely, totally. That our sin that has been committed in the past, the sin that we have committed even in the early hours of today, the sin that we will commit tomorrow has been bound up and, and paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that we are now redeemed people having been transferred from one kingdom into the kingdom of our dear God. So, Father, might our worship today please you as we come in response to that salvation. We celebrate our relationship with you, a relationship that has been wrought in grace, pure, sovereign grace. And so, Father, as men and women who have been bought with a price and who now stand here as eternally and everlastingly loved, we pray that you will release us to worship you aright. Holy Spirit of God, we know that ultimately nothing will be accomplished here of lasting value unless you author it in us. And so we come to ask the Spirit of the living God to fall fresh on us again. Not just the preacher, but those who are burdened with listening to the preacher. And I pray that all of us will be uh, taken away, caught up, carried away. And, and land in the presence of our God to gaze at his beauty. Our Father, we do want to reach the world in which we find ourselves. We want you to use us. We will not be satisfied to just know more about what your word says. We are a people who long to reach men and women who are outside of the household of faith. So, Father, give us, give us conversations even this week that might give us the privilege of sharing what we found in Christ with someone else. Father, we pray for our, our, our president. He is a man who has a wonderful testimony, and we pray that you'll guard him. Guard him from lies, guard him from deception, guard him from pride. Guard us from those things too, Lord. And prepare us as we give, prepare us as we're preached to, To approach this table and draw nigh once again to the Savior of our souls, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the book of Ruth. It's uh, after the book of Judges and before the book of 1 Samuel. The book of Ruth. And you follow in your copies as I read uh, a rather lengthy uh, portion of it. I'm going to read the first 14 verses and then three more from 19 through 21. So Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a, a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to travel in the country of Moab... He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was 
Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both, then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard of the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out <clears throat> from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much. For your sakes, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. If you're a woman and you have been around uh, the Christian church very long, you certainly have been in some kind of study, some kind of discussion group uh, concerning the book of Ruth. Now, I hope you realize that uh, Ruth is really not the heroine of this book. She's really not even the major focus of the book. Uh, She's a key player, but she's not the major focus. Really, that belongs to Naomi. Naomi is the heroine of the book. She's one of the numerous female heroines that is mentioned by the scriptures. Naomi touches all the bases of womanhood. She is, of course, a daughter. That's assumed. But she is a wife, a mother, a widow, and ultimately a grandmother. Uh, What more could a woman ask for than, than that? Well, if you've never heard the story of Naomi... Um, Mother's Day is a good day to hear it. 
And I think many of you perhaps will identify with her life, I hope so, or perhaps draw some lessons from Naomi's life. It is a life that uh, started in happiness, it traveled through despair, and it ended up at joy. Let's take a look at Naomi's life, who, as I said, is the real heroine of the book of Ruth. When we first meet her, actually, um, uh, the, the famine has already begun. But to, prior to the, the, the famine, we're told, of course, that she's married and has two boys. Life is good. Um, the, the, let the good times roll for Naomi. We're obedient, uh, and God is blessing us. Uh, and, and privately, she perhaps even thought that um, the reason that God was blessing them is because she was obedient. But be that as it may, uh, she's a young woman with a young family, and life is good, and everything is going according to plan. And uh, if others perhaps were like me, says Naomi, then maybe, too, maybe they would be blessed too, because um, she thinks she's got God pretty well figured out. And then, oops, a blip. A blip on the screen. There's a famine. But it's, it's surely going to be temporary. It's no big deal. My husband will take care of it. We perhaps will have to relocate. But it's not that big of a deal. Oops. Another blip on the screen. And this time it's a little bit bigger blip. My husband just died. But it's okay. I've still got two sons. The, the, the boys will take care of me. And look, they've just, they've just found themselves wives in Moab. Everything is going to be fine. Uh, I, it'll be a joy just to be a part of their lives. Oops. Another blip. And this time a really big blip. Both of the boys die. And she is left alone. As far as Naomi is concerned, those happy days, they're gone. The Lord doesn't appear to do anything, at least in this early chapter, this first phase of her life, doesn't appear to do anything to preserve the dreams that Naomi once thought were essential to her happiness. In her mind, uh, her future held something like this. Growing old with a, uh, a devoted husband, two sons, two daughters-in-law, producing all kinds of grandkids. It was a, a dream that is understandable and normal, a dream that perhaps is, is possessed by some of you. But at least in the life of Naomi, her dream uh, did not come to fruition. And we find her in the second phase of her life, uh, walking through despair. This section beginning at verse 8 and going through verse 13, where she's in dialogue with her two daughters-in-law, is really rather pitiful. She turns to her daughters-in-law and she says, don't come with me and don't call me Naomi either. Call me Mara. Don't call me Pleasant. Call me bitter because that's what I am. Uh, life is just not unfolded the way I thought it would. 
And your chances of happiness, O daughters-in-law, your chances of happiness are much better in the land of Moab. Did you notice how how she's thinking in these verses because she talks about, you know, you, you, you're going to get a husband and, and, and a house and, and, um, um, and, and she's trying to talk them into returning to their people because with me, you'll never get a husband. And it's in verse eight, go return each to his mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you. And, and, and she goes on to talk with them about, you know, happiness is back over there. That's where you're going to find a, a husband and a house. Because in the mind of Naomi, happiness was associated with those things. Um, marriage, children, a nice house. Very contemporary thinking, I, I would suggest. Naomi is convinced that ha- how could you ever be happy without those things? If you don't have a house, if you don't have a husband, if you don't have, a, have sons and children... How are you ever going to be happy? Happiness is, is gone. And for Naomi, it's replaced with despair and delusion, disillusionment. And then in verse 13, which is really kind of the bottom of her experience, notice that last sentence. She says, no, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She mentions that again in verse uh, 21. Um, she concludes that her tragic experience has been authored by God. It's all God's fault. He took my family. Now, gang, we, we must not try to sanitize this story by suggesting that she said something like this. Like, um, um, it's a hard time I'm going through. Yes, it is. Uh, most nights I cry myself to sleep, but uh, um, it's okay. Um, uh, God knows what he's doing. I, you know, he's, he's taken my family for perfectly good reasons. I, I don't know those reasons right yet, but um, I'll, I'm going to walk by faith because I, I know that nothing ever comes to my life unless it passes through the tender hands of God. I'm just going to bank my life on, uh, I, I'm going to be fine. Now, that really may have been what she ought to have said. Uh, that may be what we think she should have said, but it's not what she said. What she said is, God did this to me, and I'm not real happy about it. He could have prevented everything, but he didn't do it. You know, ladies and gentlemen, it's one thing to be in the midst, in the midst of a personal tragedy, but it's quite another thing when you conclude that the author of your tragedy is the God that you thought you had figured out. I didn't know he operated like this. I thought I understood what he was like. But this, I, I, I don't understand. None of this that is happening in my life now do I understand. All of these are pieces of a larger picture, a plan that that is unfolding that I cannot clearly see. Those thoughts never crossed her mind. <laughs> uh, it would have helped had they had those thoughts crossed her mind, but they didn't cross her mind. In the midst of her despair, all she can think of is that God did this. She's stuck in, the, in this downward spiritual spiral and, and knowing that God could have prevented it had he wanted to, but he didn't. Why didn't he? You know, uh, this past 
Friday morning in my own devotions, I was reading in the book of Jeremiah. And, you know, most in the, the evangelical community doesn't know much about the book of Jeremiah. There is a couple of places that they are familiar with, but one of them is in chapter 29. You know that statement uh, uh, in Jeremiah 29:11 that has become just dear to so many of us? Uh, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Well, that's found in, in, in chapter 29, verse 11. We know that, that much about the book of Jeremiah. We've heard it preached or something. But just this Friday, I noticed something about that that I had never seen before. Do you notice where that is found? Do you know where that's found, that statement? It's in a letter. It's a letter written by Jeremiah to captives in Babylon. So here's the setting, ladies and gentlemen. Jeremiah is writing a letter to people who are basically imprisoned by a foreign oppressor. And he is saying to them, God has a future and a plan. And a plan to give you a hope and, and on and on. But he's writing it in the, to people who are in the midst of oppression. Apparently... If in the midst of difficulty, we would remember that God has a plan, it might help us. And he was encouraging those people to remember, and it would have helped had Naomi remembered. But Naomi didn't. All she knows is, I had a definition and a concept of what happiness was, and it included a husband, children, and a home. And now, I don't have any of those things. So what am I to do? If happiness is to be defined like that, and I don't have any of those things, what is there for me? Well, then at the close of the book, as you might expect, we find phase three of of Naomi's life. It's really recorded for you beginning in verse 13. And we find that Naomi's different. You need to fast forward a few years. I don't know how many years, but a few years indeed. And, and uh, it's clear that in these last few verses of the book of Ruth, that the narrator of this book intends for us to see Naomi at the end of her life as one who is a, a deeply contented older woman. Let, let me show you where I... Where I to see that. First of all, in verse 13, notice the language. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception. Now, ladies and gentlemen, normally when people conceive, that's not the language that's used. Usually the language is, and Adam went into her and knew Eve and she conceived. But you notice the emphasis here is the Lord gave her conception. There's something that's being said there, ladies and gentlemen, that God is indeed now beginning to unfold that plan. And and look at verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, who is it that's pregnant? Is it Naomi or Ruth? It's Ruth. Ruth is the one that's pregnant. But look, this is being, verse 14 is addressed to Naomi. Blessed is Naomi. Naomi's not pregnant. Ruth is. But Naomi is the one who is now blessed. All I'm trying to suggest is 
that the, the narrator of this story wants to make sure that you see that at the end of her life, that, that God is indeed beginning to perform that bigger picture, that plan, that, 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 that idea that never crossed Naomi's mind back in chapter 1. God had, um, had replaced her concept of happiness. And he had given her something greater. And he does it in the most creative and unpredictable way. Because Naomi becomes the caretaker of a grander promise. God had stripped her, indeed, of, of her concept of happiness. And had replaced that with something far deeper. Because we're told... Um, in verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Now, you know who that child is, of course. He is one of those who becomes the, uh, the, the, the grandfather of David. And, of course, the whole line of redemption is brought through this child or is maintained through this child. Now, gang, um, God had restored Naomi. But he didn't do it by resurrecting her sons and her husband. That would have been wonderful. But what you see here is more wonderful. Because what she has resting on her bosom is the whole line of redemption. And what is it that brought about, stay with me, what is it that she had to experience to bring her from a false and empty concept of happiness to a real sense of redemptive, contented joy. In phase one, chapter one, she is cursing God because he's been so mean to her. Because God took away from her the things that she thought were essential for her happiness. In chapter four, she is a contented older woman with a line of redemption resting on her bosom. What is it that took her from here to here? Well, ladies and gentlemen, there are two things I want to mention. First of all, the, the direct agent of bringing her from here to here was pain. Rarely do God's people move forward spiritually without discomfort. That's, that's, the, that's, direct, that's the direct cause. But there's something on the inside that I think that Naomi, that this, this story suggests that Naomi has learned. And that is that she had a false definition and a false concept of what brought happiness. Gang, she learned that to build her identity on being a wife and a mother was a false identity. And that's my point. Have you learned that? Soren Kierkegaard has a definition of sin. And it's an interesting, I mean, there's all kinds of definitions of sin out there, but uh, Soren Kierkegaard's definition of sin is this. Anytime I build my identity on something other than God, it's sin. The temptation among us, ladies and gentlemen, 
is to build our identity on something other than a relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and at defining this whole concept of, of what happiness should involve and include. And when in those deep desires of our heart, when they are for something other than God, then what we end up doing is we develop a sense of entitlement. That is, we, we, we see, we define ourselves as needing certain things. And if we don't have them, then we could never find any kind of happiness. And God becomes a, He becomes an enemy. He becomes a thief. Because He has stolen from us the things that we defined as being necessary for our happiness. Naomi has, has a husband, she has children, and she is on her way to grandchildren with two, grand, two, with two daughters-in-law. And in her mind, she is a blessed woman. Then those things get taken. And so she looks at everybody around her and says, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant. Because everything that I needed to have a sense of purpose in my life has been stripped from me. Now, let me give you that definition of Kierkegaard again. Anytime I build my, my identity on something other than God, even if it is as meaningful as motherhood, I've set myself up for some very painful lessons. Because, ladies and gentlemen, my identity is not that I'm a father or a mother or a, or a preacher or a, a businessman or an athlete. That is not my identity. You know, gang, Satan's masterpiece is not some prostitute or some skid row bum. Satan's masterpiece is the person who has found a way to manipulate life in such a way that they're perfectly content with things that they were not intended to be content with. The Holy Spirit's masterpiece is the person who cries out, Oh Lord God, your loving kindness is better than life. That's what we were intended to build our life on, ladies and gentlemen. And what we find here in this story of Ruth, I, I, I want to say that God is going to do this every time, but I, I, I can't say that. But what we find in this story is a woman who built her identity on all the wrong things, and God in kindness and in paternal love strips all of those away so that she will build her life on something that is lasting and meaningful and divine. So any time any of us seek to build our identity, our, our definition of who we are as persons on something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, we're, gonna, we're setting ourselves up for some real hard lessons. Guys, let me, let me leave you with two lessons in a story, and then we've got to move to the Lord's table. But primarily... One of the lessons that I think that you can walk away with is that 
the, the farther that we travel as on a spiritual journey, the less God seems to respond to our requests for some kind of pleasant life. Our, our fondest dreams for this life, the ones that we naturally believe are essential to our happiness, those have got to be abandoned. And replaced with something far more profound, far more meaningful, far more full of depth. The Lord wants more for us, ladies and gentlemen, than our personal peace. And the decision that we make to live for whatever brings instant pleasure turns us into idolaters. Sometimes the idolatry is more profound or more public. You know, people who surf the internet for pornography or a... Uh, or drink too much. Sometimes the idolatry is more subtle. You know, like the preacher who lives to, to build a big church. Or um, parents who live to do everything they can to produce good kids. Or the businessman who lives for just the next deal. All of that, ladies and gentlemen, is sand. It's building life on sand. And so, discomforts arrive, and the whole spiritual house gets shaken. And then God replaces it with something far more meaningful, far more profound, far more full of depth. Two quick things, and I'm finished. I want to tell you a story, a story I found just this week, about one of my heroes. In my world, the name B.B. Warfield, uh, you may not know that name, but he's one of my heroes. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. He was a theologian of world renown. He taught at Princeton Seminary for some 34 years um, and has written numerous books, several of which I have uh, and some of you might have. Primarily, one of his most famous books is about authority and, and inspiration. But you may know that part of the story, but this part of the story you may not know. In 1876, at the age of 25, he married a high school sweetheart, Annie Kincaid. And they went to Germany for their honeymoon. Uh, On the honeymoon, while in Germany, in an electrical storm, Annie Kincaid, his new wife, was struck by lightning and permanently paralyzed. He cared for his wife for 39 years until he buried her in 1915. And because of all of her extraordinary needs, Warfield could rarely leave the house more than two hours at a time because he had to contend with for his wife and her needs. Warfield's life started out like Naomi's. And then it moved to a period like Naomi's. 39 years he cared for an invalid, crippled permanently paralyzed wife. Towards the end of his life, he writes a commentary on the book of Romans. He comes to Romans 8, verse 28. Do you know that text? For all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. And so Warfield has to write a comment on Romans 8, 28. After caring for 39 years for an invalid wife, listen to what he says. This man has a right to say something, ladies and gentlemen. He says, 
The fundamental thought in this verse is the universal government of God. All that comes to you is under his controlling hand. If he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. He is the author of all in our life and will will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us. You know, ladies and gentlemen, um, what God is up to in Naomi's life is what he's up to in many of our lives. He is convincing us that to build our life on anything other than a growing relationship with Jesus Christ is going to end up tasting dry as dust. Naomi um, counsels her little daughter-in-law, Ruth, in chapter 3, verse 18. She says to Ruth this, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter of this day. Of course, that's a reference to Boaz, who will ultimately marry Ruth and impregnate her and produce the line that bears the Redeemer. But here's, I think, the Holy Spirit's word to us. Sit still, my brother and sister in Christ, until you know how this matter will turn out. For the man, the man will not rest. Until he has concluded the matter of this day. God will not rest, my brother and sister in Christ. He will not rest until our lives are built on that which is lasting and meaningful. So often that means giving up on one definition of happiness. And replacing it with something far more meaningful. I think that's the challenge of the story of Ruth. Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will forgive us as people who have built our lives on something other than Jesus Christ. We built it on success. We built it on families. We built it on marriages. We built it on affirmation. We've built it on so many things that would have proved to be nothing but sand underneath us. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will remind us that there is only one sure and true foundation, that of Jesus Christ. And as we head to this table, we bring our sin, we bring our sin and, and seek your forgiveness and your assurance that we can now Exchange that which was meaningless for the meaningful. Oh God, we, um, we long to be people who are built on a rock. Do that, Lord. Remind us of that need as we approach these emblems of redemption. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.